You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and, the, and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Catherine. Church family, good to see you here this morning. Hope you're doing well. If you're a guest among us, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here at Northway. Grateful to have you with us here this morning. Genesis 21 is where we are, closing out this particular chapter this week in our study of Genesis. Um, And as we turn there and look at this text, uh, one of the questions that I get asked a lot as a pastor these days, and it's one question that this text is going to ask and answer as well, um, what does it look like for a Christian to live here in the city of Dallas, to live in a culture that every day the values of the culture are getting further and further and further away from what I believe and see and am convicted by is the values of the scriptures. What does it look like to live as a sojourner in a land that is not our home yet, um, but one day will be? Uh, This is an age-old question. It's not a new question. Uh, Francis Schaeffer in his day was asking that question as how should we then live with all that is going on in the world around us? How do we as the child of God, how, do we, how are we to live um, being in this place but not of this place? Now, there's been a lot of responses uh, that we are enticed to believe is the answer to that question. One of those is that of withdrawal. Let's just go Benedict option on this place. Let's just go hide out. Let's go build our own community. Let's totally detach from the world in which we live and its values and its uh, devolving. Let's go and let's form our own community and we'll have our own everything and never have to touch the world around us. That's one of the answers. Don't think that's the right one. Another one that we are tempted towards is that of compromise. And I think we're seeing this in spades in today's church culture. It's just frog in the kettle. It's just kind of grow up in the system. So if you can't beat it, join it. 
Go with the flow. It's gonna make life a lot easier if I just look and act like everybody else around us. I hold to the same values that every news station has thrown out in front of us and I just kind of detach myself, not from the culture, but I just detach myself from the word of God and I compromise. That's not the answer either. And yet another one that it seems like it's getting fresh teeth right now is just all out hostile takeover. Um, let's, just, let's just raise up uh, heavy force against the culture that we're in today and let's just take it back. This is typically a common thing for a group of people who once held, had the culture around them holding the values that they had and then as those are taken away from them, they want that back and they wanna seize it by power. And so let's just reclaim everything, no matter what uh, use of force it may require, and let's just do a hostile takeover to seize back that power that we lost. And those, unfortunately, three common responses, and you'll see them uh, in, in all kinds of ways in our culture today. But it's not new to us. Those same three responses were in Jesus's day as well. Think about different communities that existed then. One is the Essenes. The Essene community was part of that withdrawal community. This was a group of people that lived down by the Dead Sea um, and they built their own communities down there and they totally detached from everybody else. John the Baptist grew up in that culture of the Essenes. Now there's some good that came from it because what they did every day is they copied the scriptures meticulously, so much so that in 1948, we found some of their works called the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was from the Essene community, but they were totally detached from culture. And then in the same day, you also had Herodians all around, which were Jewish people who were loyal to Rome. They were loyal to Herod. They ejected from the word of God and they took on the culture's values because that's the way that they could climb the ladder. That's the way they could excel. That's the way they could make life easier. And then you had the zealots, the hostile takeover group, who they felt this is our land, this is our uh, promises of God. It's been taken from us. And so what we're going to do is we'll use any force necessary. If we need to murder, we'll murder. If we need to riot, we'll riot. If we need to ambush, we'll ambush. But we'll do whatever we got to do to take this back in our day. And all of those are not the way that Christ and the scriptures have called us to live. In the text that we're in today, we're going to see through the lens of old Father Abraham. He's going to show us a better way. And we're going to see, rather than withdraw and compromise and hostile takeover, we're going to see three other things. What it looks like to live peaceably, what it looks like to live righteously, and what it looks like to live eternally as sojourners in a land that is not ours, but one day by the promise of God will be. And so if you remember from Genesis 12, God made Abraham a lot of promises, but three categories of promise, land, seed, and blessing. And we have seen two of these on display. When it comes to blessing, everywhere Abraham has gone, the blessing of God has been upon him. Not because of how righteous that Abraham was, but because God was more committed to his covenant than Abraham was to his own sin. God is committed to making his promises come true. And so his blessing was on Abraham everywhere he went. You can see that. And then we've seen the promise of seed, of offspring, Saw that last week. After 25 years of barrenness and waiting, the promise of a miracle child came through the birth of Isaac. 
And God opened Sarah's womb and this child came. But even though Isaac is a miraculous child, he's not the ultimate end of that promise because it's through his line that the real offspring that is in view is going to come into play. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years later, would come as the one in whom all the nations will be blessed, our Messiah. But the question is, what about the land promise? Because last I checked, still hadn't come into play yet. Abraham is a sojourner in a foreign land. He has been for the last 25 years. But if you remember from chapter 15, God did promise Abraham. He did tell him, hey, you're actually not going to live to see that day. You're going to die before this land becomes yours and your family's. But eventually, and God told him through prophecy about 400 years later, your offspring, your descendants are going to inherit this land. And so... Knowing that, what then does this mean for Abraham with the time that he has left on earth? How is he to live as a sojourner in a foreign land that is not his, but one day it will be? And therefore for us, also asking that question, how too should we then live as Christians who are sojourning on this planet? Well, let's look at these three things. The first two we're going to see in verse 22 and following. What it looks like for sojourners, God's people, to live peaceably and righteously. You see this, verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Pekol, the commander of his army, they said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So we get this Abimelech again. Last time we saw this guy, chapter 20. Remember, Abimelech is more of a title of a king. It's not necessarily his first name. Abimelech means son of my king, or father of my king. And uh, this was a title. You're going to see another one pop up with Isaac in chapter 26. But this particular king encountered Abraham back in chapter 20 when Abraham first arrived in his territory, Gerar, which is, uh, which is uh, modern-day Gaza Strip, right on the Mediterranean Sea in Israel. And Abraham, remember in chapter 20, lied to him. First time he met him, lied, said his wife was his sister, and all kinds of things went bad in that scene. And, uh, and dang near took uh, Abimelech's life because of this lie, put a plague on his whole household, but God interceded because God is more committed to his covenant promises than even Abraham is committed to his sin. And God delivered them all from that situation. And as a result, Abimelech promised Abraham that he could sojourn in his land, that he could set up shop here and just kind of live off the land as long as he wants. And so now here we are, we're a year later, Isaac's been born, Abimelech approaches Abraham again, seeking a peace treaty, a formalized peace treaty. In fact, the very presence of his military commander with him means we're looking at some sort of ceasefire contract going on right here. Why is he doing that? Why does Abimelech need a peace treaty from Abraham who's given permission to uh, sojourn on his land? Well, I think two reasons. Number one, we see it in the text. He knows that God is with Abraham. He, he's seen the hand of God on Abraham's life. Even in Abraham's stupidity, he's seen 
The power of God demonstrated in his life. He cannot argue with the evidence that God is for this man. I want you to imagine what that would be like for us in this present moment in our day and time for a non-believing idol worshiper to say that of you and to say that of me. To go, listen, hey, I, I know I'm a polytheist. I know we're on total opposite ends of the spectrum and our views of morality with one another, but man, I cannot argue with the undisputable evidence that the God that you profess, the God that you confess, and the God that I've seen experienced in your life, through your life, is real. He is real, and he is real enough to make me question my own beliefs. But in the meantime, that's enough for me to want to make sure that we're cool, because I don't want your God messing with me anymore. So I want to make sure uh, that I don't cross your God any further. Imagine what that'd be like, man, for even our own enemies, even our own non-believing community around us who disagree with us in every way possible, but yet cannot argue with the evidence of God in your life. That's a beautiful thing that's here. But there's a second reason that Abimelech is asking for this treaty. It's because last time when they encountered, Abraham acted like an idiot and it dang near cost him his life. And so no doubt in this moment, he is calling into question Abraham's past actions and he's showing them that they are incongruent with the faith that he claims in this God. It doesn't line up. And so in a sense, Abraham is, or Abimelech is calling Abraham to live up to his own confession and live up to the righteousness that you would expect from this God as a follower of this God. And so in a sense, can we just come together and make an agreement that neither one of us are gonna deal falsely with one another so that we can live peacefully out of righteousness and we can live in this thing together to which Abraham says, yes, I'm in on this treaty. Now, what would this have communicated to the original readers who are eventually going to set up shop and they're going to be representatives of God to the nations around them, they're seeing a picture of what it looks like to live peaceably and righteously. And in the same way as Christians, we have been called to do the same in the time that we have left on this earth. We are as sojourners in a land that is not ours yet, but one day will be. We are called to live peaceably too. Listen to Paul's words from 1 Thessalonians chapter four. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we've instructed you. Why? So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Live in such a way that you are promoting peace. Live in such a way that you're not seeking purposeful hostility. It's gonna come because the, the gospel itself will be um, a front to a secular non-believing culture, but make sure the way that you are living your life is in such a way that is extending the same shalom of God that you have received through Jesus Christ, that you would extend that to others. Paul said to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, not every time it's gonna be outside of your control, but as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Our time on this earth right now, it's not for hostile takeover. Rest assured, that day is coming. 
but it will be inaugurated by Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There is a day coming when Christ will return to this earth. He will remove all evil from this planet and he will make all things new. It's the reason why Paul told the Romans, you can leave vengeance for God. You don't have to take it on your own hands because nobody's getting away with it. He's gonna deal with it. So you who have received what you did not deserve, which is the peace of Christ in your life, you go and extend that to others as well. Paul told the Philippians, our citizenship is not on this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. He told the Corinthians, you and I are ambassadors. That's representatives of one country who find themselves living in another country representing the values of the home country. And that's who we are to be. Those who are seeking peace with our neighbors, the welfare of the kings and the cities that we find ourselves in, where at all possible. But in doing so, we're not only to live peaceably, we're also to make sure we are living righteously. Peter wrote to the church in 1 Peter chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you, and listen to these titles, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, that's who we are, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they actually may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's Peter saying, listen, you're gonna have the whole world picking a fight with you because of your confession in Jesus Christ. There's no hiding that, it's coming. You better get ready. They're not gonna like you evangelizing them. That's all part of the game, that's all part of the plan. However, don't let them have an accusation against your character. Don't let them have an accusation against the righteousness which you have received from Jesus Christ and the new life that you've received. Live in such a way that would make them question their own beliefs because they see the evidence of God within your life. There must be a distinction between our values and actions and the actions and the values of the world that is around us. There should be a difference based upon who and what we believe in in a way that tangibly represents the God and the kingdom that we belong to. Now, by the way, that's what integrity means. Even the word integer means wholeness, means that your confession about who you are in Christ and the evidence that is seen in your life actually have agreement with one another. They don't contradict one another. To say that I follow Christ, but I live like the world, that is is non-integrity. That is non-wholeness. We are to be people of integrity. Abraham dang near got Abimelech and his people killed because of his hypocrisy. Almost blew his witness. And it took a pagan king to call him out on the difference between the God that he claimed to believe in and the lies that he told. And so may we too, as we sojourn here on this planet, as representatives of God's kingdom, may we be a people of integrity whose lives and confession have agreement so that Jesus can be glorified among the nations. So there is a call here to live peaceably and righteously. Now, what you see next is a ceremony that proves and ratifies Abraham's commitment now to living peaceably and righteously while he sojourns. But first, he's got to clear up an issue that is going on between him and Abimelech that Abimelech doesn't even know about before they can make this covenant together. You see this starting in verse 25. 
When Abraham then reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I, I don't know, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me and I've not heard about it until today. And so we have this dispute going on here over a well that Abraham had dug in this land that Abimelech had allowed him to stay in. And apparently, Abraham's servants have come and taken this well back and Abraham, that he dug it, he no longer has access to it. And you gotta understand this. Water sources in the southern desert of Israel are a big deal. Water sources anywhere are a big deal. It is a matter of life and death. Entire communities would be built around areas that had a spring in it. And then they would dig wells to tap into that spring. That was their livelihood. If Abraham is going to be able to sojourn effectively as God has promised and as Abimelech has allowed him to, then he's gonna need this well, the well that he dug for both his people and his flocks. But in addition, what we're gonna find out theologically here is that this well also represents kind of a down payment on God's promise that this is going to be your descendant's land. And it represents Abraham's trust to be able to dig this well, to believe I'm putting this down, to say this is going to be the land that you're going to provide. And so Abraham, he could have made a stink about this. Here's what I want you to see. He could have made a stink about this. He could have been entitled. He could have been combative. This is my well. It's mine. Give it back. But as a demonstration of his commitment to peace and righteousness is in his willingness to lay down his rights and actually buy back the very thing that was once his. And so we are seeing a tremendous amount of maturity in Abraham's faith as we progressed. Not perfect, but we are seeing some maturity along the way. And so in a great reversal of roles, he's going to enter into a covenantal ceremony for this piece of land and this well that is reflective of the covenantal ceremony that God did with him back in chapter 15. You see this in verse 27 and following. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? And Abraham said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Pekol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. So ox and sheep are given in this covenantal ceremony. Remember the word covenant means to cut. And so what you would typically do is you would take these animals and you would cut them in half as bloody and as gory as that sounds, from head to toe, and you would lay the parts on two different sides, and the two parties, whatever they were making an agreement on, which in this case, it's the land and the willingness to live peacefully and righteously in it, they would meet in the center, and in their 
their way in the ancient Near East would essentially shake on that deal. And in doing so, they were saying, if I fail to keep my end of the deal, or if you fail to keep your end of the deal, may our God do to us what we just did to these animals. So let's keep this, let's keep this deal up. And they make this covenant. But you note, Abraham sets aside seven young female lambs. And they serve as a payment for this well. Again, he didn't have to do this, but this is Abraham wanting to be so above reproach. There will never be a question as to who this well belongs to and this land and his permission to dwell on it here. And so once the ceremony's done, they solemnize it by naming, renaming this site where this happened, Beersheba. Now, that is an interesting word. It's an interesting place. Look at these pictures real quick. This is what it looks like today. Every year that I take a group over to Israel to do these tours, we always go to Beersheba. It's a very important city. And we look at it. It looks like it hadn't changed a bit in 4,000 years. Looks like a desert place right there in this community. And there you see on the right-hand side, there's an actual well there. That's not Abraham's well. They have not located that that they can find. But this well right here that you're looking at is actually dated to Solomon, 1000 BC, this well. And, uh, and so you get a little taste of what that was like there. And when they name it Beersheba, it's very intentional. It's a play on words. Be'er, I know we all want to say beer, right? We just want to love it. Beersheba. Uh, but it's Be'er, and Be'er is the word for well. It's the well. Shiva is the Hebrew term for the number seven. But it also sounds like the Hebrew word Shevu'ah, which means oath. And so it's a double play on words. It either means the well of the seven, the seven lambs, or the well of the oath is the name of this place. And it still retains that name to this day. This well represents the fruit of an oath that in one sense serves as a sojourner's commitment to peace and righteousness. But more than that, it is Abraham's declaration of trust in the promise that God made him concerning the future of this land and his purposes in the meantime. From this point forward, Abraham's not gonna set up shop anywhere else in the Genesis narrative. He's gonna stay right here in Beersheba. He's going to raise his kids, his grandkids, and he's gonna die here. And he's gonna do so all the, all the while teaching his children and his grandchildren about God teaching them in the way of Yahweh and the great promises that he has for them. And uh, believing the whole time and waiting the whole time that one day God, who's not a liar, will deliver on his promise and he will bring this land to his offspring and they will worship Yahweh here. Now, what happens next is one of my favorite passages in all the scriptures. It's beautiful. It's going to show us the importance now as sojourners, not only of living peaceably and righteously, but what it looks like for us to live and invest eternally while we sojourn on this planet. I want you to see this, the last two verses here. Soon as this is done, soon as this covenantal ceremony is done, Abraham, right there in Beersheba, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree. And he called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days right there in the land of what will soon be the Philistines. 
So as an act of worship, he's made the agreement, I'm going to live peaceably, I'm going to live righteously with you while I wait on the promise of God. And as an act of worship, an act of trust, Abraham plants a tamarisk tree. Now, we would normally skip right over this. We don't know what a tamarisk tree is. It's only one verse. There's a lot to see. We're about to get to the sacrifice of Isaac in the next few verses. So we just would skip over it, and we are missing pure Bible gold right here. Now, lest we think this is some Arbor Day move where he just, we're just going to plant a tree and then let's go in the name of this. No, tamarisk trees are important. I want you to see this picture of a tamarisk tree. Tamarisk tree is only mentioned about three times in your Bible, but it was incredibly popular in the ancient Near East communities, especially in the desert. This is equivalent to what we would call probably a salt cedar here in the States, but there it is known as the desert AC. It is the desert air conditioning. Uh, This tree is amazing. It has evergreen leaves that produces incredible shade. Its leaves will collect water vapors from the moisture that is in the air during the evening. And then in the day when it radiates its heat, it will convert that to droplets that will drop from the tree, like a misting fan when you're standing in line at Six Flags. This is like a mister right there. It's crazy. This is literally God's outdoor air conditioning system. In addition, certain insects will land on this tree. They'll transform the juice into a nectar that is a white-like nectar paste that is sweet to eat. It's like a little delicacy that you can actually find replenishing energy on while you sit in the shade from the heat of the sun. Great tree to plant in the desert. Here is the one problem with this tree. It only grows one inch every year. One inch. And it takes an average of 400 years to reach maturity. So here's the question. If you're Abraham, you just planted a little tamarisk tree right here. Why do all the work, why plant this tree that you know you will never be around to enjoy its benefits from? And the answer is he wasn't planting this tree for himself. He believed in the promise of God's faithfulness so much to a future generation that he was making a mark of declaration about it. And interestingly enough, you know what would transpire over the next 400 years while this tree was growing? Abraham has Isaac. Isaac's going to have Jacob. Jacob's going to have his 12 sons. They're going to relocate into Egypt with famine, and they're going to go down there and become slaves in Egypt And all those descendants will begin to multiply as slaves for the next 430 years before God goes, time's up. And he ransoms and rescues his people. He delivers them in the Exodus. He parts the Red Sea, takes them across. They wander in the wilderness. And now the original Hebrew readers who had just come out of the Exodus, who are on the banks of the Jordan, about to go into the promised land, are reading this text in Genesis 1 in real time. And they are reading this just as they are about to sit under the benefits of Abraham's faith and investment and planting that tree 400 years earlier. They will receive the shade 
that Abraham never got in that tree because he believed they would. Abraham believed the promises of God so much, he didn't want to invest in just his generation, but he planted for generations that were yet to come. Well, that preach, that'll preach all dang day right there. Likewise, you and I as Christians, as sojourners in this land that is not ours yet, but one day will be, we are We are called to build into something bigger than we can even see that is intended to far outlast our generation in order to provide for those who will come after us. Jesus said as much in Matthew chapter six in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. You are investing into a purse that doesn't have holes in it when you are pouring into God's kingdom. You and I were put on this earth as sojourners. We are redeemed here as sojourners. This is not our home yet. Our citizenship is heaven. That day is coming. But like Abraham, we've received part of the promise already, haven't we? Part of Abraham's promise was for a son who would come, a miracle son. You and I have received a son as well. It's actually the longtime offspring of Isaac, Jesus Christ. He is the son, and as we'll see next week, with the foreshadow that is shown in Isaac's near sacrifice in the next chapter, God sent his own son, who would give his own life for you and I, so that we can be forgiven of our sins through his death on the cross where he shed his blood for us, absorbing the just wrath of God that you and I deserve for our rebellion, Jesus took it for us. He gave his own life for us, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave three days later so that in him we can have new life, not just a second chance at the old life, a recreated life, a rebirth that is now made as sons and daughters of God where we reflect and we image him after the distortion that sin had caused is all redeemed through Jesus Christ. We've received that first part of the promise, but like Abraham, we're still waiting on the second part, aren't we? That day when Jesus Christ will return, overthrow all evil, and once again, the dwelling place of God will be with his creation, unhindered for the rest of eternity. And we are waiting on that promise right now. And in the meantime, In the meantime, we are called to live peacefully. We are to take the shalom that we have received vertically in Christ and we are to go give that away. Christ has reconciled us to the Father through his sacrifice on the cross and he is in the business now of reconciling us to one another through that same blood that was shed on that cross and we're to go out and be ministers of reconciliation. We are to live peacefully in the time that we have here on this earth. And we are to live righteously as a people who've been purchased. We're not our own anymore. We're redeemed by the blood of Christ. He has claimed to our lives. And because of the rebirth of the Holy Spirit, we've been given regenerated hearts, new attitudes, new minds, new desires, new affections, and a new allegiance and obedience. And we are to be set apart living distinct, not living in the ways of the world, not representing the value system of the culture around us that is so rampant right now, but we are to represent the will of God that has been revealed to us and has been empowered to us by the Holy Spirit. But we are also to live 
and invest eternally. Proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, living for a kingdom that we cannot see in its fullness yet, but we know is coming. Investing in a day like today where everybody's living for now, when everybody's seeking to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate for what we it is we can enjoy now, we know something not everybody knows, that there's a greater gift that's coming. And so even though our flesh is entangled with us, we can lay some of these values down because we've got a greater value that's unseen, but is still coming. What would it look like as the people of God to play the long game with the time that we have left? To not just think about these next 40, 50, 60 years we may have on earth, but to think about the next 400 years, knowing that what we do now matters. And to think about everything that we do right now actually goes beyond that all the way into eternity. What would it look for, like for us as the people of God to act in faith and worship like Abraham did where we start planting our own proverbial tamarisk trees? Where we start putting our stake in the ground to go, we believe God so much that we're gonna trust in faith that 400 years from now, eternity from now, what he said will be is gonna be so that what we're living for far outlives us and goes to the generations that will come after us. What are the promises of God that you are investing in right now that will outlive you? You know your job has a shelf life. You know your youth has a shelf life. Your singleness has a shelf life. Your marriage has a shelf life. Even your own families have a shelf life. Even this church in its present form as much as I hope God keeps an influence right here on this corner for many generations to come, inevitably, even this form of our church gathering, it has a shelf life too. We know our very lives have a shelf life. The question is, what are you doing with those things right now that will matter for all eternity? How will you leverage your job, not just for today, but for eternity? How will you leverage your singleness, not just for right now, but for eternity? How will you leverage your marriage, your family? How will you leverage your role in this church as a member of Christ's body here in the city of Dallas that will pay dividends for all eternity? The only thing that the scriptures promise will transfer from this life into eternity is God's word and the souls of people. So whether you're here at Northway for the next year or two before the Lord reassigns you to the next place or whether you're going to be here with us for the decades to come, your work here matters. Everything we do matters. So let's get out there. Let's evangelize. Let's disciple. Let's use our work to invest. Let's take the time and the treasures and the talent that we have been given and let's go make much of Jesus' name and Jesus' kingdom with those things for the good of this city, for the good of the people who are surrounding us right now, who are far from the Lord, who need to taste and see that the Lord is good. This is our time. Our generation is for the future generations that will come. I wanna encourage you, spend some time this week considering this passage, meditate on it, ask yourself, 
how might the Lord be leading me to live more faithfully in peace and righteousness and investing for eternity as a sojourner in Dallas, Texas? For those that maybe just need a little bit of encouragement, let me leave you with this. Paul's words to the Galatians, chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. God is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, how much do we need to receive what we see in this text? That we are not just here for us. We are here for something much bigger. God, would you, would you increase our sight? Would you help us to see away from the narrow focus that we see of our lives just about us? Let us see the bigger picture, oh God. Let us see that you've put us here for a reason. Let us see that you've redeemed us for a reason. Let us see that our existence here is not meaningless. It matters for all eternity. And so God, as those who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who've received new birth, let us not waste these days, but let us go forth as sojourners and exiles, living peaceably, righteously, and eternally for the glory of your name and for our good and the good of those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.